Sport. Welcome to ConCon episode six. Uh, this is a, day ca- a recap of day four of the consciousness, uh, the science of consciousness conference in Taormina, Italy. And uh, this was an incredible day. I mean, I think I keep saying this is like my favorite, but this 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 was like a, this was one of the. Um, this is a really impressive day. There's a lot of stuff about artificial intelligence. Um, but from a, like the practical meets the philosophical level, I would say. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. We started with uh, Manuel and Lenore Bloom, who are legendary computer scientists. Uh, Manuel has a Turing Award, which is kind of the Nobel Prize uh, in computer science. Been from around forever. Both ben and I's alma mater, Carnegie Mellon. Yep, Carnegie we, Mellon. We both were at Carnegie Mellon when we met. I was afraid to take a class from either one of them because I heard, <laughs> they heard they were hard. Uh, <laughs> And now I kind of regret it because I saw their talk and I thought, oh, this, uh, they're really good at explaining yeah. things. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, so they basically had this idea of, okay, we want to tackle this question of artificial general intelligence, or consciousness more generally. Can we do something along the lines of a Turing machine, which is sort of the simplest thing that can do all computable functions that Alan Turing invented? Can we have sort of uh, a, the simplest possible but no simpler model for a conscious agent of some sort? And uh, I think that's a great uh, la- launching point, right? I, I kind of have an engineering bent, so this really hit hard for me. I thought, oh, this is, this is great because you can sort of, um, basically you, you define the simple model, you see what it predicts, and if it matches the things that we associate with consciousness, you might be on the right track. And if it doesn't, you have to update the model. So it seems like a very sort of tractable way to arrive at something that at least has all the features that we think are necessary for consciousness. And then you can, of course, probe what the machine looks like. And it's hopefully fairly simple. So you can actually sort of derive things from it. And that just to me seems like a really fruitful way to go about doing things. Yeah. And they, um, what I really liked is that they just said, all right, we, we looked at a few different theories of consciousness and we're going to take this general workspace theory as our, as our working model. And we've seen this a few times. Um, uh, for those who are unfamiliar with general workspace theory, it kind of is exactly what it sounds like, that you have a general purpose workspace in your mind that kind of certain types of conscious experience are surfaced to, to be able to have access to. And I think like the, the talk that we talked about from yesterday of seeing the low salient signal and putting them together, that's like a very general workspace um, theory action. And um, in another talk, somebody also said like, oh, you know, integrated information is an important part of consciousness aside from the integrated information theory. So these theories and general workspace theory being one of them, um, can be provocative or debunked in some ways by certain people because they'll say they'll make these neuroscientific claims or these deep philosophical claims. So inter- integrated information theory, for example, is like, oh, well, you know, uh, consciousness is primary and you have this substrate that is integrated and thus it is already conscious. And, and it's kind of like almost a panpsychist claim, right? Versus just saying like, a conscious system needs to integrate information in order to be conscious, which feels super uncontroversial. So it's, it's just interesting that there feels like this kind of collective consensus that 
some aspects of these theories are viable, even if we're not going to bite on the whole thing. Um, and so they just said, okay, we're going to use this general workspace theory and we're going to try and make a Turing machine that can execute in the way that we would expect a general workspace theory to um, machine to work. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it, it reminds global me... Global workspace, not uh, general workspace. Yeah, global yeah. workspace. It reminds me of sort of this issue of um, if you are an IIT guy and you say, well, it's just that is what consciousness is. I think then you still have to say, well, what about these organisms that are integrating information in this kind of this other way and have this sort of experience and representational state? And it, it almost seems like it doesn't really solve the problem. You still then have to end up with the global workspace theory on top of IIT. Yeah. Right? It's not like doing much legwork for me anyway. Yeah, um, no, I think that's a great point. Yeah. yeah. So in one more thing sort of about this uh, global workspace theory, Emmanuel had a, had a kind of funny anecdote when he was a child. You know, he did the thing that everybody does where you try to think about how your mind works and you imagine <laughs> a guy sort of in a cockpit, sort of, you know, his eyeballs looking out your eyeballs and yeah. sort of directing you like inside out sort of thing. And then he said, well, wait a second, but who's directing that guy? It's the homunculus problem. But global workspace, the sort of the, the metaphor there is you have a stage and there's a speaker on the stage that's, uh, and there's an audience that's sort of vying for the speaker's attention to try to sort of send up things that the speaker is going to say. From the speaker's point of view, they're sort of just randomly receiving bits from the audience. And the only thing they're conscious of is sort of the speech, right? the speaker speeching, uh, speaking. And that kind of solves the homunculus problem, essentially. Yeah. And also maybe better explains the mechanism of, the, of what the brain is doing. And, and also kind of the, um, you know, von Neumann-esque uh, nature of thought where it's like, try as you might, you don't really have multiple thoughts at the same time. You can hold the stream right. of consciousness, but you're actually kind of processing them one at a time. Like, I think I've learned, it seems like there's a lot of philosophers talking about this. There's like a technical term they're using. Is it called like uni unify, unification or something? Oh, like the, un like this, the unity of the conscious experience. You're only yeah. having one experience at a time and that's, yeah. And then I think that's also related. If you're panpsychist, uh, then you have the combination problem. Yeah. Like, how do these little bits that are all like uh, conscious on their own combine to one, seemingly one unified conscious experience that we have? And in meditation, you are having this experience where it's like, you know, obviously your your body is experiencing lots of things at the same time: the level of light in the room, the hardness of the surface that you're sitting on, the you know the warmth or coldness of your skin, but like. You know, in meditation, it's very clear, like you, you, whatever you're paying attention to, you're only getting one at a time. So it's not that the experience is singular, it's that the attention to that experience and consciousness of that experience is singular. Exactly. There's one speaker on this stage. So they had a, a kind of a really elegant, uh, very computer science kind of um, innovation where they have, so they're saying, you know, okay, here's, here's this global workspace theory. How do we actually make this minimal model? And they have this thing called the up tree, right? So at the bottom, at the leaves of this uh, sort of inverted or tree that sort of the, the information proper, uh, propagates upward, at the bottom, you have all these sort of modules, like a sense module, a visual module. They had a chat GPT module. And these sort of vie, uh, again, they're like the audience trying to deliver their message to the speaker. So the speaker speaks their message. So it's a competition. And in fact, it looks like, uh, you know, a tournament bracket. Right, where you sort of yeah. hit these things as like a binary tree and the winner sort of moves on to the next stage of the bracket and so forth. And I, as a computer scientist myself, I love this, but I also love that they found that 
the simplest thing where you sort of actually have a single elimination tournament kind of style. So all of these little pieces sort of uh, in the unconscious are sort of fighting each other one by one. It doesn't actually work. You need some extra stuff. You need a couple of things. You need some randomness. So it isn't always that sort of the dominant thing beats out the other thing. Uh, there's kind of a coin flip neuron. And then also you need this very sort of elegant structure that sort of um, respects the original uh, winning probabilities at the bottom leaves all the way up at the top. And that gets me really excited for my own research, actually, because yeah. I think it's a useful concept. Um, anytime you want something, we call it like permutation invariance. So you, you don't actually, you know, the brackets, let's say you're doing a tennis tournament. When you establish the brackets, you don't want the end winner of the tournament uh, to be so reliant on the sort of random initial ordering of the yeah. people playing in the brackets. You would actually like it to be permutation variant, where you get the same winner, the same outcome, regardless of how the initial brackets were yeah. constructed. And they came up with a really nice sort of mathematical um, proof and algorithm to respect those initial winning probabilities, even though at any yeah. given time, you're only seeing sort of your neighbor and fighting with your neighbor. And to, to sort of dial in a little bit to this, this tree, so what it's saying is that like, there's essentially a bunch of subsystems that are vying for this speaker's attention. And on the slide, in part probably to be provocative a little bit, they had all these different, like some of these subsystems were, for example, ChatGPT. Or I'm trying to remember some of the other ones that they had. But the uh, idea Wolfram is- Wolfram Alpha. Wolfram Alpha, you yeah. know, Google Maps, you know, GPS, whatever. So you have all of these digital subsystems, right? that have their own um, inputs and they are sending stuff up to this global workspace to say like, hey, pay attention to me. And one of the things that's really fascinating about this architecture is that the workspace itself, sort of that, that attender can stay the same even as you add new modules. Mm -hmm. So one, one, one model that really speaks to me of the brain is kind of thinking of our emotions as the core processor, say, of your iPhone. And it's like the default operating system, right? And then the apps are like a language center and a visual center or whatever that have been like implemented in different parts of your brain that then kind of, but they still all have to feed through that same processor. And so as, as you, as your system evolves, you can just upgrade each of those individual modules. And then um, the other interesting thing is that like a very key part of this is that over time, as these sort of connections become more um, predictable and routine, they actually stop going up to the global workspace. Right. So the global workspace is kind of a, almost like an error state or a fail state of like, hey, we weren't able to sort this out ourselves. So Mr. Speaker, we need you to like broadcast this and sort of see this and sort of reflect on it, right? And so over time, ChatGPT could just talk to your GPS or it could talk to your, you know, mole from alpha and kind of and do the math and figure things out. And you don't even need to be aware of it, uh, which is very much they, they talked about, um, you know, philosophers or I forget who it was the psychologist, somebody who would always tell them that children are more conscious than adults, right? Which seems counterintuitive, but like the things that a child has to attend to that have to rise to that global workspace actually are more than for a human because things like walking and even driving at times or, you know, lots of generating speech aren't things they have to think about. They're just things that happen automatically. Yeah. And I think that's a really good example of what they were getting at when they said that, like, hopefully this model is useful insofar as we, if we have the simplest model as possible, but no simpler. And yet it shows that when you learn how to ride a bike, takes all this conscious thought and, and after all it's effortless and unconscious 
this this simplistic model should also exhibit that and it does yeah right so it kind of like starts to hit all of these bullet points of what we think are emblematic of like conscious experience uh, I, I will mention one thing i wrote down i, I mean i think that uh, both the blooms were like incredible like very very good um and it's great to see people so sharp in their 80s <laughs> but one thing that they said that really struck out to me is um distinguish between the hard and the easy problem as uh, simulating versus feeling, right? So they said the easy problem is how do you simulate these things? Um, and the hard problem is how do you uh, basically go beyond simulation to actually feeling these things? I thought that was just a really beautiful and easy way to explain because like, people are constantly saying, well, wait, what is the difference what between the hard the and the easy problem? Yeah. And I'm like, neural correlates to consciousness, and then it's just like, what? What does that mean? But it's the difference between, you know, simulating a kidney Right, and getting all the functional sort of input-output mappings, and then having a kidney like pee on your desk or whatever, yeah. right? Like, and uh, yeah, to me that was like pretty profound, and it's just emblematic of like I think how they're able to sort of distill these very hard, murky things into very concrete, like oh, I can go out and program that tomorrow, yeah. uh, kind of things, which is why I was very excited. Well, we've been saying for a while that you know, the, uh, Ben, you sent me this paper a while back that was like. Um, I think it was about uh, LLMs sort of cross cross trained or sort of cross applied to new different problems in some different domain and how they were had like performed better in certain ways. And it was like 50 different examples of this. And I was like, wow, this is, if you were doing this with humans, this is a lifetime of psych psychology research to try and do this. And you could do this with LLMs this quickly um, in, you know, in a single paper. And the, um, what, one of the things that popped up for me with this is I said, okay, here's global workspace theory. Here's how we would implement this as a conscious Turing machine. And w what strikes me, and, and so, you know, we've been kind of saying for a while, it seems like AI may be the salvation of like collapsing these theories of consciousness because you can just like test it in an AI and decide which one looks most like what we do, right? Um, LLMs kind of, you know, the next session we're going to talk about is about are these LLMs conscious because this language processing looks a lot like what, like what we're doing, right? And so I think similarly, you know, these guys built a conscious Turing machine around general workspace theory. I think if other people had other have other theories that they want that they should be able to construct similar Turing machines that are different in the ways that their theories would predict, and then we can essentially like duke it out, have these <laughs> have these two conscious machines uh, systems like debate essentially, and we're like, oh well, this guy seems more conscious, or this guy seems more conscious. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I would love to see that. Um, yeah, should we move on? Let's move on to Chalmers. Yeah, um, who was uh, the keynote? And I guess uh, you saw him last year. He was also keynote, is that correct? He was also keynote last year. So last year, his topic was um, about virtual reality. Mm -hmm. And he had a book that came out um, about it. And I think it's, it's interesting. I think he was like kind of behind the interest curve on VR. I think the VR like public interest was like, you know, peaked maybe a couple years ago. Um, and, and his point was sort of like, oh, conscious entities or sorry, virtual entities should probably be treated as conscious in the same way, like that our experience is virtual. I mean, sort of an unprovocative statement actually amongst um, philosophers, I would, I would say. Um, but anyway, so that, that, was, that was interesting and fine. Now he's talking about AI, so he's more on the zeitgeist. Um, and I thought, it was, I thought it was great. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see people referencing a lot of his ideas in much they reference the hard and easy problem for many years from now. Yeah. 
I think what he what he's brilliant at is elucidating the problem in a way that um, serves good branding, grabs people's attention, and informs like future research. I think there's a lot of sort of nebulous uh, ideas about this, you know, the space of AI and consciousness. Any sort of he didn't like give any, um, you know, definite like opinion like ah, it's this is what it is. He just sort of gave the space of questions that need to be answered before we can even arrive at, at a statement like that. Um, so, I, I mean, I thought that was great. And I, you know, it's funny, I don't know if I agree with him. He sort of has a bit of a panpsychist bent, you know, the hard problem. We've, we sort of uh, made fun of that yeah. in a previous episode or two or three. And uh, here he is, I think, just doing really great work uh, establishing the problem more formally, which is, uh, to me, like one of the best things you can do as a philosopher. And, and honestly, giving a good name to philosophers who I would say from our experience <laughs> at this conference have um, really underperformed in terms of like providing meaningful fodder for, for their conversation. Like it's more that their, their arguments seem to be at, aimed at like shutting down insight and shutting down conversation of like, you know, experience doesn't exist or experience is in unity with everything. It's like, okay. You know, whereas I, I feel like this is actually um, a lot of like great food. For yeah, thought. it's like it's like the yin and yang of philosophy. On one end, you have this sort of like sophistry kind of just trolls wanting to argue and, and um, be against, you know, common sense or against. Well, I don't know. I don't want to say too much bad about philosophy. But on the other side, you have people like Chalmers who, who are doing good work. I think I think what he that talk clarifying things like that, being outspoken about that, people listening to him is going to have a good effect on how we go forward. And w one of the great things he did, he sort of just made a list. Um, yeah. Well, he, I guess he did two things. So one, he said, um, here's condition one, condition two, on sort of how to go about arguing. Uh, you know, if you think it, if you think consciousness needs, you know, thing X, um, and you also think thing X is sort of exhibited or not in large language model, those are sort of the two separate arguments you have yeah. to make to, to complete it. And then he listed sort of all the common ways, uh, the common avenues people do that. Like, oh, you need embodiment. Oh, you need biology. Yeah. And for each one, explained the ramifications of that or how would you go about testing that and what are the arguments for and against. Awesome. Yeah, so the, I'll just summarize his, um, the, the things that he talked about. So here, like, here's some things that people would say you need um, for an AI. Biology has been uh, mentioned. And then he, so he classified that as contentious, meaning some people would argue that you need that. Some people said you wouldn't. Um, and that's a permanent problem. That's like not going to be solvable, right? Every other problem that he mentions seems to be likely a temporary problem that AIs will only face for now. Yeah. For um, example, embodiment. You just yeah. put a large language model in a robot and have it walk around the world. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Or even, I mean, you don't even necessarily need a physical body. You could have senses of, you know. Uh, in a virtual have, environment in, in a, yeah. well, in, or in a physical, you could have cameras that are like oh, monitoring true. people true. Yeah, or, yeah. you know, um, and then a world model, um, or a general workspace. Um, those are, um, most people would agree that you do need those. Um, those are definitely temporary if they haven't already been solved in some ways. Right. The, he brought up that LLMs seem to, he was the one that talked about the Othello game. Othello, right? Yeah. And, and I've seen recent research with chess where you can sort of tease out that there, there is a game board in, in sort of in the activations of the neurons yep. as like a, a state, a stateful uh, thing. I mean, this is how they're able to sort of play chess, GPT-4 yep. specifically. Um, and then uh, recurrent processing. So sort of like 
the the human style of of learning and you could probably talk to this better ben about like back prop versus forward proper i don't even know the right terms here. I, I think the the complaint is uh, transformers are just simply feed forward right there, there's no sort of loop where any of the signals uh, go back in i i don't know if it holds much weight i think that there's ways you can get around that you can sort of have like what's called like unrolled loops right so you can essentially have loop-like behavior even if it's feed forward by just sort of it sort of remembering its previous state and acting as if it was in a loop for a certain amount of iterations and then the autoregressive property of transformers in the first place where they spit out a word and then condition the next word on all the words that they previously spit out is a loop, right? So each word itself is a feed forward, but it's incorporating a state that was all the previous words that it spit out. So in that sense, you can also sort of have like loopy sort of leaked information in, into the system. But yeah, I mean, to, to Chalmers point, this is going to happen. Someone's going to do this. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any fundamental blockage here. So if that's what you're saying is required for consciousness, well, there's no, there's no yeah. computer science like barrier here towards that goal. So like we should be prepared for that. Um, if that's the thing that you think hinges on the current ones, not being conscious. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was great. Um, he did have, uh, th- there was this interesting side sort of thing. Um, although Anil Seth hopped up and asked a question about it, which I, I think always is a, is a good signal. I thought it was like, uh, an interesting one about, um, they call it credences. So he, he mentioned multiple times, um, what percentage of people in this field believe in say panpsychism versus the hard problem versus what, whatever other aspect. And he talked about these, how, you know, your belief that an LLM is conscious would be based on the percentage that you vow, you know, think these things are important and the percentage that you believe that this is something that's already happening in LLMs. And Anil Seth got up and said, sort of like, don't you think that this is a forever moving goalpost in that um, people tend to systematically undervalue or see as unconscious behaviors that they're seeing right now? And Kurzweil actually talks about this as well. Um, I forget what the is it is it like a you know a bias to want to feel like you're the only special yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly so it's or but it, it's also like when it loses its mystery so it's sort of like you know you think about um ai agents in like a soccer game a uh, video soccer game you're like well i mean they're just playing soccer that's not a big deal like well it took many years to sort of get that kind of you know uh, type of play ironed out that could like have a certain level of skill. And then once it's there, you're like, well, that's obviously not conscious. Right. And so like, as we, and now that you've got chat GPT, people will be like, oh, well that's just, you just type it in and it just types something back. No big deal. Right. Yeah, of course it can write essays can in the style that. of any yeah, author yeah. that's ever existed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I do think that's an interesting point, um, about consciousness stuff in general is like people tend to sort of like push stuff away once it's well understood and say like, well, that's not actually what we're talking about. Yeah, and uh, so we're kind of always raising the bar. It, yeah. I think Anil or maybe Chalmers called it like a meta prior. I just love this. <laughs> Got to stick meta onto everything. But it reminds me. So at the end, and, and again, I think this is Chalmers' like brilliant branding. He comes to this uh, conclusion that seems like shocking. He says, "I think there's a 10% chance that you know ChatGPT is conscious," and of course that's going to be the headline everywhere. Right? Yeah, this is yeah. The, this is the viral statement. But the way he came to that was very political. He said, like, okay, here's all the theories that exist. Assign credences to them however you want. 
I'm going to be conservative and I'm just going to sign a credence based on how many people believe this. Like panpsychism is not very popular. So credence there was like 15%. We'll say 15% people believe in panpsychism. And here's what panpsychism says. Well, it says it is conscious, right? And yeah. Kind of like a not doing any work since yeah, yeah. my complaint. But here's all the other uh, theories and here's what they would say according to sort of my guidelines. And you just add all that up, Bayes rule, and you say, oh, we hit 10%. Like there, there's a 10% uh, chance. <laughs> I don't know how, he called that the theory balance approach. I don't know how meaningful that is, but it's kind of fun. You yeah. Know, it's kind of fun to do. It is also, I think one of the things that made, you know, I think I had a, fairly rosy view of philosophers coming into this year. I don't remember there being a lot of philosophy talks. Maybe I just didn't dip, didn't go to them last year. Um, but almost across the board, every other philosophy talk we've been in was just really painful. Yeah. Or it would start out with the, yeah, to me, they kind of always do this. They start out with a really cool, profound question. And then it's an hour of definitions, just yeah. like just ripping it apart bit by bit, super tediously. And I under I understand why you'd want to do that because otherwise there's no ground for people to argue, or at least that's the intent anyway. That if we make every definition so rigorous, we say hallucination is exactly like this, and illusion is exactly like this, and so there's the difference here. So you got to mean what you say when you say one of these words in an argument. <laughs> to ground it properly to other people. Yeah. I get that. But the detail to which they do that, and then there's no resolution, is definitions <laughs> all the way down. I'm like, where where's the work yeah. actually being done? And then you and then you see something like Chalmers and you go, oh my God, this this grounds uh every future discussion yeah. of AI and consciousness. And it can be understood by um, AI researchers like me who are working on these things. And it can be understood by philosophers. So it's a and, huge, and it's, it's almost no almost no jargon at all. I mean, yeah, tons of jargon. I guess you'd say not not a lot of definitions. Yeah, um, yeah. A, lot yeah. Of a lot of clarifications. Yeah, um, and then I don't think we necessarily need to go in too much into the rest of the day. But there was a, a philosophy session that we sat in and for part of because um, there was the, a title that sounded very provocative and related to the stuff that uh, I'm really interested in, which is social um, consciousness. And um, he, yeah, again, this sort of philosophy lens, he talked about, um, you know, there being certain elements that um, are social, but it turned, it turned into all definitions. And then, you know, I was basically waiting for him to be like, oh, this is just like Graziano's attention schema theory. And he kind of brought it up on one slide at the very end and then just immediately dismissed it and said, it's like not complete enough or something. It like there was, and there was no other data about anything from, there was no anthropology. There was no like, um, neuroscience. Like it was yeah, well, it's just, just sheer intellectual willpower. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, that's what pushes you forward in philosophy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, he put up the Graziano. I got really excited. I said, aha, this is our guy, you know? And and then he said, but I go one step farther, you know, with my mind, you know, I, I went there and I much prefer the Graziano approach of like sort of he goes there from sort of logic and engineering and experimental empirical evidence. Yeah. Um, so that's the day, I guess. That's the day. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for joining us for, I think maybe I didn't say this at the beginning, ConCon, Consciousness Conversations with Ben and DR. <laughs> Uh, you can find more about us at concon.show. Please leave us some comments on YouTube and subscribe if you're interested. We'll have um, a lot more content once uh, 
the conference is over as well. So we're doing this conference coverage where we're going to do kind of ongoing uh, conversations and stuff about AI, stuff about consciousness. So thanks. Thanks.